Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 140. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Glad to be here. You can follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like me on Facebook at Brian McClanahan. And of course, you can subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. If you go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, you can find all my social media buttons at the top of the page. You can also give me an email address and I will give you a free ebook. Forgotten Founders and a free audiobook read by yours truly. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support if you want to support the Brian McClanahan Show. And you can support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to join, and of course, I will be adding more material over time. So go on out and check that out. That is my latest educational endeavor. You can also go to learntruehistory.com where you can subscribe there and get some courses taught by yours truly, along with Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, and a lot of other great liberty-minded faculty. And you can always get your Brian McClanahan Show gear at redbubble.com. Go on out there and look for me, Brian McClanahan. It'll come up with my logo, and you can buy it on all kinds of cool stuff like shirts and coffee mugs and stationery and skins for your iPad or iPhone or your Samsung device, whatever you got, tote bags, clocks, you name it. Uh, you can get my logo on it. So go on out there and check out redbubble.com and look for Brian McClanahan. Okay, uh, today's show is uh, piggybacking on the show I did on small towns versus city and it, cities, and it's a really unique part. And I think as a podcaster, um, this is an interesting topic to me. Maybe it won't be for you, but as a podcaster, someone who does a podcast two times a week for the Brian McClanahan Show and once a week for the Abbeville Institute podcast, as someone who does that, it's interesting to me to look at mass media and what people are doing and how they're doing these things. And, of course, podcasting is a very interesting and unique type of media. It's something that's on demand. And, of course, on demand is always good. One thing that I've always complained about, you go out and you get, uh, say, a satellite dish. You can't just pick the programs you want. Now, CBS, for example, is doing on-demand now. You pay a monthly fee, and you get all the CBS programming you want, including some special program that they don't offer on their normal network stations. And there's no commercials, so that's great once you pay the subscription fee. I think this is going to be the way of the future, people buying subscription services, and they get on-demand content. So podcasts are on-demand content, and they're free. You can choose to support the podcast you want. You can go to their sponsors or you can support that individual through a, maybe a subscription service or uh, you know, a support page, things like that. But it's free. You don't have to pay anything to listen to this podcast if you want to, just like a radio station. You don't pay anything to have a radio station on in your car where it's free. You have the, the sponsors, the advertisers, and if you want to shop at those advertisers, that helps support that particular show. But podcasting is a very local, intimate type thing. Because it's on demand, you can pick and choose who you want to listen to. You can pick and choose what type of content you want to listen to. If you want to listen to a podcast that covers sports talk, you can do it, or talk radio like this, or political talk. Uh, you can do ones that talk about cooking, about healthy lifestyles. I mean, literature, people read books on podcasts. I mean, you name it. It's out there on a podcast, and so in many ways, it's kind of like 
the model of, in some ways, public broadcasting, which, of course, is completely unconstitutional, but public broadcasting, the idea you're going to bring people this wide variety of content, but you can pick and choose, and still it's all free. Um, I always hear you know, advertisements for podcasts when I listen to the regular radio. This is the amazing. In the last couple of years, I've heard a lot more of that. Listen to my podcasts, and they're advertising on radio stations for their podcasts. And it's all kinds of stuff. And some of these things I would never listen to in a million years. Just like there's many radio programs I would never listen to. But podcasting allows individuals who have a diverse viewpoint on many topics to actually have a show. And they can go on they can talk about those things. And people will get it. And they subscribe to the things they want. You can music podcasts if you want. Talk about different music. Musicians, artists, things like that. You can do all of that stuff. Interviews. Uh, little niche podcasts. These, these things are great. But radio still has a purpose. People do listen to podcasts in cars. For myself, I still listen to, I still consume a large amount of radio broadcasts when I'm in my car. I'll just admit, I do a lot of that. I do listen to my, to my uh, podcasts and I listen to music in the car through my mobile device, but I still listen to talk radio. I like uh, to listen to sports talk radio sometimes, for example. Even political talk radio I listen to because it's interesting. And, of course, what's interesting about that is that the, the landscape of talk radio has changed over the last 20 years or so. Maybe 30 years would be more accurate, but definitely in the last 20 years. Since the 1990s, it's really changed. One of the uh, radio programs I listen to when it comes to sports talk is the Jim Rome Show, which is out of Los Angeles, California. Now, it is a quote-unquote national sports talk show, and it's funny. Jim Rome, Jim Rome can be very funny, but he's a Californian. He and I, uh, in many ways, have no similarities culturally. He's a Californian, I am not. His show is funny. I don't. Uh, some of the humor that he does, is, it's very Californian, uh, and so it's, it's different. And they tend to make fun of, at times, people from the South and other things. So some of his, particularly some of his listeners, when they call in pe- people from the Midwest or from the Northeast, even from California, they make fun of people from the South. Rome, Jim Rome doesn't, but his listeners tend to. But I, I still like that type of, of media. And I listen to some of the nationally uh, syndicated talk shows. I'll put on you know, some of the big names in talk radio at times. And listen to them, because sometimes they can be funny, and sometimes they have interesting content. But what happened in the last 20 years is really a takeover of these nationally syndicated programs at the expense of the local, at the expense of the small radio station that's trying to make it, that's got local content. They talk about local politics, local issues, or state issues, state politics, these kind of things are falling by the wayside. I just saw today uh, there was a, a local radio station where I grew up that's no longer broadcasting on, <laughs> over the years. Now it's that's only streaming at this point. Online, that's all you can do, streaming online. And they had a talk show, and for years, I remember that was part of my life growing up. My, my folks would have on the talk show in the morning, and it would be the one particular uh, talk show host, and he's still doing it, uh, but now it's streaming only online. No longer over the air. That's because these radio stations are struggling, and um, you know a lot more younger people are going to podcasts. But there is, 
And the, the article I want to talk about today gets into something that's really interesting. If you could do this, it's part of this think locally, act locally idea where you could have an impact. Volunteer. Now, you're not going to get paid for this. I mean, even most, even podcasters, even podcasters that are supported aren't getting rich off of podcasting. It's just something you do because you love it, and people like to do these things. They like to talk about things. Maybe you're a, a person who likes a particular type of music, and you just have to have an avenue to talk about it because you want to find pe- you want to find your tribe. You want to find your group of people that like the thing you like. Remember, you know, when I was in school, you found your group of people that liked the same kind of music, had the same kind of ideas. That was your tribe. That was your group. Those, those are your people. And so you have that in small towns, too. And, uh, you know, last uh, one of the previous episodes, I talked about that. You have that in small towns. You got your people. But podcasting also fits that need, and it creates some type of cultural continuity. But these big radio stations, and I remember when I lived in a different city for a time, there was a local afternoon political talk station, political talk show, that probably isn't on the air anymore because it would have been consumed by the nationally syndicated talk stations and talk shows, but it was still local, and people thought that that's what people want to listen. They wanted local sports talk. Even, even here in this town, in the afternoon on the, on the talk sports talk station, they do have a few days a week a local sports talk with guys that live right in this community, and they talk about all kinds of things outside of, uh, of this, this particular city because we don't really have much of a local um, sports community, but um, so we're we're more tied into a larger city just north of here. But the fact is, uh, they do talk about things. Now, one of my favorite sport talk sports talk shows for years before the guy was actually indicted of embezzling funds and all kinds of things was a show entitled Southern Sports Tonight with with uh, Scott McKitty and Max Howell. And Scott McKinney uh, is in jail right now, I believe, because uh, he did a lot of terrible things with other people's money. But uh, it was a great show because all they did was cover SEC sports and Southern sports. It was great. And I loved it. It created very much of a, you know, a, a, a camaraderie. And the only people that listened to it were in the South, and it only was syndicated in the South. So you had this camaraderie there. That said, there is still an opportunity through podcasting, number one. Podcasting is an opportunity to have to do things where more and more people in a local area, I mean, you get local people listening to your podcast. Of course, you can get people all over the world listening to your podcast, too. That happens. But you can do something in your own podcast if you just want a podcast about whatever you're interested in. Some people will find you, and you will create a community. But there's also, and this is an article that came out in the New York Times on uh, January 6th. The title is, As Low Power Local Radio Rises, Tiny Voices Become a Collective Shout. And this is an interesting article. And actually, the, the, the author is talking about Seattle. And I'll read this little article to you because I think that this is another avenue for mass media consumption. Now, if you look at the low-power FM stations that they're talking about here, first of all, they haven't offered any licenses since 2013. So it's been several years. But they do offer licenses here and there, and they allow these uh, in- entities to go out and, and buy or at least apply for Low power licenses, and it's you have to be a non for profit group or a church, something like that. You can't just be an individual wanting to have a low power license, but you could get a non profit organization 
that could come out and you could do these things. And they only have about a three-mile radius, three-and-a-half-mile radius, depending on uh, depending on geography. Um, so think about that. I mean, most of your communities are no bigger than three miles. So you could really have an impact with a particular type of low-power station in your own community. And maybe you're listening to this, and you know people that have their own community, and they just have a church or something, and all they do is put the sermon out on Sundays. Well, maybe you're part of that church, and you could get people to start doing some other things with it. Or maybe there's a low-power station. Maybe you can get a license for one, and you can do something else. But let me read this particular article. A knowledge of geography is essential if you are running a tiny 100-watt radio station. Hills are bad, for example, as are tall buildings. Saltwater, though, which lies at this city's doorstep, can boost a radio signal for miles like a skipped rock. For a low-power FM radio station, anything measurable in miles is good. But on a recent Thursday night, one station, KBFG, was struggling to even get on the air. The station signal, audible since November in an area measurable in square blocks, has flatlined. The Ballard High School basketball team was about to take the court, and the live play-by-play was in doubt. We're bootstrapping it, said Eric Muse, a physics and astronomy teacher. Headphones were slung around his neck, and a mop of unruly gray hair came further undone as he leaned into his laptop trying to fix a software glitch. But Mr. Muse, 60, one of KBFG's founders, admitted that the stakes for failure were relatively low. Almost nobody knows we exist, he said. Low-power, non-profit FM stations are, are the still, small voices of media. They whisper out from the basements and attics and from minuscule studios and on-the-fly live broadcasts like KBFG's. They have traditionally been rural and often run by churches, many date to the early 2000s when the first surge of federal licenses were issued. But in the last year, a diverse new wave of stations has arrived in urban America, cranking up in cities from Miami to the Twin Cities, Minnesota, and especially here in the Northwest, where six community stations began to broadcast in Seattle. At least four more have started in Portland. Some are trying to become neighborhood bulletin boards or voices of the counterculture or social justice. Alternative is the word that unites them. It's an unprecedented time in our radio history when we have so many stations getting on the air at the same time, said Jennifer Waits, the social media director at Radio Survivor, a group in San Francisco that tracks and advocates for non-commercial radio. So think. let's just pause there for a second. Think about what that last paragraph said. This is Think Locally, Act Locally. These are trying to become neighborhood bulletin boards, voices of the counterculture or social justice or libertarianism or conservatism, whatever you want. Now, people would say, we already have conservatism. We got Rush Limbaugh. We got Sean Hannity. And we got these people. Well, is that real conservatism? I mean, Limbaugh can be funny. I'll listen to Limbaugh at times. I'll listen to Hannity at times. They can have good information at times. Or Mark Levin. But most of the time, they're wrong. So do we want to have different voices? Podcasts can fill that void. But imagine if you lived in an urban area that may be no bigger than three miles, and you can be a real voice in that area. People can find you. It takes a little advertising. You're not for profit. Uh, letting people know you're there. You're not trying to make any money. You're just trying to pay the bills. A nonprofit organization. Let me go on. And you can do things with this that are important for your community, for social and cultural continuity, to create a feeling of togetherness. Now, low-power FM stations can typically be heard for about three and a half miles if a bigger station or obstacle does not block the signal. Of the nearly 2,500 low-power stations in some stage of licensing, construction, or active broadcasts across the nation, more than 850 have a license holder with a religious affiliation. 
Many bigger stations, by contrast, are being programmed far from the cities they serve, with corporate budgets to buy transmitters that can boost the signal beyond its home base. The low-power licenses are exclusively local, restricted to nonprofit groups that have a civic cause, the South Philadelphia Rainbow Committee, for example, or from solely for the sake of a station and the dreams that fuel its existence. Washington has the second-highest concentration of them among the nation's 15 most populous states, with 68 stations for 7.4 million people, according to the Federal Communications Commission, second only to Florida. New York, by contrast, has 54 stations, but nearly three times Washington's population. Oregon, while not among the 15 most populous states, with 4.1 million people, is even more saturated than Washington and Florida. It has 80 lower-power stations, most in rural areas. You want weird? Just turn the dial. One station in Seattle invites listeners to phone their dreams and fantasies into a recorded line, then puts them on the air, at least the ones that don't raise concerns about FCC and decency rules. Russian-speaking residents in Portland, Oregon, have their own tiny station. And if you want to be charmed by a five-year-old boy chatting with his father at bedtime about dinosaurs, music, and sometimes bothersome sisters, you can find that at, that at Tristan's Bedtime Radio Hour, broadcast on Sunday nights on KBFG in northwest Seattle, where Tristan lives. It also streams on the web. So this is, again, this is the stuff I've... This is podcasting, but where you actually can turn on the radio in your car, in your house, or somewhere, and you can get these things. This is local. This is what all this stuff is about. What low-power urban radio creates, believers say, is a sense of community, a defined physical stamp of existence that goes only as far as it can be heard. So new licenses and programmers are knocking on doors near their attendants and holding fundraisers at the local brew pub. That's a stark contrast to the amorphous, everywhere-but-nowhere world of the web. And the web streaming radio or podcast that a few years ago seemed most likely to take center stage in low-budget community communications. So again, here is the advantage. Here is the advantage, though I do think podcasting still has a role. When you start broadcasting, it's like you have a storefront, says Rebecca Webb, founder of the Portland radio project KSFL 99.1, which broadcasts from two rooms above a closed, silent movie-era theater built around 1915. The station promises to play a Portland-area music group every 15 minutes. And in a time of media consolidation, Mrs. Webb said, that's a political act. She is exactly right. I remember when people were talking about Vermont secession. One of the things that they were trying to do in Vermont is play fish all the time. Because fish is a Vermont group. Made it big. And they tried to play other local Vermont things. They tried to you know, shop Vermont, buy Vermont products, buy Vermont food, listen to Vermont, consume Vermont media. She's exactly right. This is wonderful because it's creating a local, we-don't-need-you environment. I love it. This is such an awesome article. The New York Times actually wrote something cool. The fact that we have gathered ourselves up by our bootstraps and created a community radio station is a direct response to the ownership concentration of large media companies, she said. Many community groups with no money and often no experience in radio got help in starting their stations. A Seattle-based Event ticketing company with a social mission and working with nonprofits allowed a staff organizer, Sabrina Roach, to help people manage the FCC process with seminars, training, and advice. In Oregon and California, a group called Common Frequency jumped in, especially in rural areas, helping people get licenses as they came available. In Philadelphia, the Prometheus Radio Project led a fight to get the FCC to relax rules to allow more low-power FM stations, especially in urban markets, which big broadcasters had opposed. The most the recent FCC vote to end so-called net neutrality, under which Internet users were guaranteed equal speed and access, might not directly affect small radio broadcasters that do not live stream. But advocates said the decision amplified the importance of small voices, however they are expressed. If it gets harder for independent media to stream online, the low-power FM stations will become even more important, said Todd Urich, 
a radio engineer who helped lead Common Frequency. So again, this is a this is a think locally, act locally situation here. People starting to think that hey, I'm a I'm I live in Oregon. I don't really care about or I live in Portland. Even better, I'm a Portland resident. I want to support Portland. I am a resident in Philadelphia. I want to support Philadelphia. We're starting not to think about national. And anytime you can do that, anytime you can break that cycle, it's a wonderful thing. Just think locally, act locally. Clara Plutton, a stand-up comedian in Seattle who pays the bills by waiting tables, hosts a radio show with Val Nigro, which also does comedy every other Tuesday night on Hollow Earth Radio, KHUH 104.9. The station began broadcasting in the Central District of Seattle in September, and Mrs. Plutton and Miss Nigro are now in their second month of Queer Talk, as they describe their show. There's no salary, no fame, no certainty of an audience of any kind, the women said in an interview at the station, but deep rewards nonetheless in knowing that they that they speaking out about their lives and their city. When things go wrong, she said, and they do, a curse word slipping out or a bad skipping CD, it's part of the experience for volunteers and listeners alike. Lack of polish is part of the authenticity. That's the same thing with podcasting. It's like members of the community broadcasting to members of their community, Miss Plutton said. I agree. Some volunteer DJs like Bob Knowles in Portland found a place in local radio after 25 years fishing for halibut in Alaska. He turned in, tuned in one day to KSFL, the Portland Radio Project, and liked it so much that he went in and got his own show. Throwing it back Thursdays, playing obscure or forgotten musical tracks as one of the station's 40-odd volunteers. Gary Dunn, a 17-year-old junior at Ballard High School in Seattle who was helping to broadcast the varsity basketball game, said he liked the surprise that KBFG offered of not knowing what might come next. A song he has never heard. A perspective in politics or in life that is unfamiliar. He also likes the fact that radio is an old technology, one his great-grandparents would have known. Old devices still help us, he said. Mr. Muse, the physics teacher, ultimately got his software back up and running in time for the Ballard Beavers tip-off against the Franklin High Quakers. But it wasn't the Beavers' night, and they lost 39-70. to So I love this particular uh, idea of local radio stations, local groups, getting involved in building community. As this high school student, he gets it, what you can do with local radio. So I would encourage people who are listening to this podcast, maybe you do have a podcast, maybe you have a local nonprofit that you could do, that you get involved in, that you could do some type of local radio programming. Uh, Find if there are FCC low-power licenses available, if you could get one. Uh, Work with that. Do things like that. Again, foster community. One of the most important things you can do this think locally, act locally idea is foster community among the people around you. Cultural continuity is important if you're trying to break the cycle of excessive nationalism. And again, if I listen to, if I put on the talk radio station, I'm getting, uh, I'm getting New York City, I'm getting Los Angeles, and and I'm getting, you know, well, of course, Limbaugh would be New York. I'm getting Texas. I'm getting places other than where I live. I am getting places outside, mostly New York City, but I'm getting places outside of where I live, and their perspective is quote-unquote national. But should it be, should we start reorienting or, or reorienting our focus to the local? And that's the important thing to think about. If we start doing more of that, start looking locally, start thinking locally and acting locally, and starting to talk about community and playing, you know, hey, if you live in a city, get your local bands on there and play them. Support the people that are around you. Buy their local products. Don't support the big the big uh, box stores if you don't have to. 
Go to the people, and I know it's a lot of times about price. Well, this store has it cheaper than that store, or whatever. It but try to support these things because this is important for this idea of breaking the grip Leviathan has on modern America. And I think that's the that's the thing. You know, when I talked about rural America, urban rural split, this is what people always thought. Why do I need this centralization? Why do I need that city? Why do I need the federal city? Why do I need New York City? Why do I need that? I don't need that. I can do it right here. I can live right here. And that's the key to understanding this entire process of decentralization. You have to do you have to start thinking more in line of your community and your city and your state and of course your family first and foremost than you do for the central authority. I'll see you next time on the Brian McClanahan show. <laughs>